can go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. Just before the Psalms, it's the start of the poetry books, or also called the wisdom books. And we are going to start in Job chapter 2 today. Um, So we do teach verse by verse through the Bible uh, here, but whoever is teaching gets to choose their book. And so uh, if you've been coming, we've been in the book of Revelation. We're up through chapter 17 now, I believe, somewhere in there, with Pastor Kaysen. And uh, he and his wife are out of town today, and so I'm just filling in. And I have been, I just taught through uh, the introduction in Job 1 uh, a couple months ago. And so now here we are in Job chapter 2 today. Um, So just a real quick recap over what we we discussed in the previous chapter um, and about the book of Job. So the book of Job has much to teach us. Uh, You may have heard other pastors talk about this is what the book of Job is about, and it gets narrowed down. And pretty much, you know, you'll get a lot of different, you know, views of that, and I think all those views are right. I think the book of Job has so much to teach us. Um, One of the big things uh, that uh, we're going to focus on today is how the book of Job uh, helps us to read the Bible and study the Bible better. Um, One of the things we talked about last time was that this is God's word, but not every word in the Bible was from God. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit, completely inerrant, but it has written down what people have said that is wrong. And we are to go through and to study it to know, is this God-ordained word? Is this absolute truth from our creator? Or has the Bible recorded here someone else speaking who is a little bit lost? who is a little bit off. And so the book of Job has a lot of that. Um, many people will quote single verses. We talked about that last time. They'll pull from all over the Bible, and they'll say, the Bible says this. Well, the question is, who said it in the Bible? What was the context? There are a lot of other questions you should have whenever people do that. And so the book of Job is mostly men talking with one another and mostly being wrong in what they say. Um, there's a great deal of truth that they do speak related to God, but they all are fallen men, uh, just as we are fallen men and women. And they don't get everything right. And it's our job to seek it, to seek it out, to study, to look to the rest of the scripture to inform that truth um, from the rest of God's word to be able to study it. So that's what we're uh, focusing on. Um, one of the things uh, about the book of Job is that though it may seem to answer the question, why suffering occurs in the world, that's probably the most common uh, thought, is that Job answers the question, why does suffering occur in the world, especially to Christians? But in fact, as you get to the end, the why is never answered. Job asks why, yes, but God does not tell him why. He never tells him. Um, So why isn't really answered? What will happen when we reach the end of this book is that we will see that as God reveals himself to Job, Uh, much like what the Bible does for us today. It is the revelation of God to us. As God has revealed to us, it puts all of Job's life, the blessings, the adversity, into the right perspective. And that's why I say this book is so helpful for helping you study the Bible. Because when you study the Bible, it will put everything in your life in the correct perspective because you are looking at God's word. 
Um, and so that's what happens to Job in the end. Um, you could, uh, I've got a quote here from Job 42, the very end of the book, verse 5 and 6. Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent and dust and ashes. We have a tendency whenever we face specifically adversity and trials in our lives, all we focus on is us. We're the center of the story and we're the center of everything. And Job falls into that. We're going to see that today in chapter three, that Job is seeking for his life to be over. All he can see is his pain. He gets blinded by his own pain and his own suffering and his own depression. Um, But in the end, he sees I abhor myself, I repent in dust and ashes because he has seen God. Now, this expression, now my eye sees you, uh, it's, you know, the Bible is clear that no one has seen God. Uh, this is a Hebrew expression to say, my, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. This is talking about a, a mental perspective. I knew of you before, Now I know you much greater because you've spoken to me. And so as God spoke to him, it says from the whirlwind, Job sees God, understands God in a much clearer way than he did before. And so that's what we're talking about. So the book of Job serves us in many ways to teach us about how to study the Bible and why it is dire for all of us to do so. Um, And on that note, while I'm on it, uh, you know, that there's this idea in the medical profession There's lots of people who are like anti-Western medicine, you know, doctors can't figure anything out. All they do is, you know, treat symptoms and just give you a pill for that. You know, my generation at least is real bad about it right now. Um, And the reality is that a lot of the cure that these people are talking about is healthy diet and exercise. Every doctor (laughs) for generations has said you need a well-balanced diet and you need to exercise. That's been what they've said all along and... So we blame it. So I I know that that happens in churches too. People say, well, I was never encouraged to read my Bible. I think it's underlying. I have never met a pastor who would not say, you should read your Bible and you should pray. So I'm telling you now, in case you don't think you hear it from us often enough, it's very clear, clearly stated, you should be studying your Bible, study, 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 and pray every day. You need that for your life. So Just want to say that now. Uh, We talked about how God's sovereignty is shown in the book of Job, and that is one of the biggest things on display throughout the whole book. God is in control of everything. There is nothing that can happen outside of what he knows about and what he has given permission to. Um, This does not mean that if you have sin in your life or that, you know, the horrible things that you see around the world, God says, yes, that's okay. That's not what... We're saying about God, but God knows about it, and he has given man permission to make choices. And those choices often are wrong and terrible, um, lead to terrible things in the world. But God is in control of everything, and nothing happens outside of his authority and permission. Uh, This book teaches us about our enemy, Satan. We talked about that some last time. We're going to talk about it more today. He is subjected to God's authority, just like everyone else. And though he possesses great power and strength as a cherubim, so a cherubim, there's kind of, the Bible talks about these ranks of angels. Cherubims are way up high. Satan was one of the cherubim. He does have great power as a cherubim, which is a powerful angel. It is in no way comparable to God. 
not close. And, and, you know, there's kind of this idea in many circles, hypercharismatic circles, that, like, there's this even battle going on, and we have to partner with God in order to defeat the enemy. The, def- the enemy is subject to God. He is nowhere close in power and ability to our God. Um, nowhere close. Uh, but I do want to clarify something that I said last time. Um, I talked about how Satan is wise. He's more wise than us. Um, and I understand that that could sound really bad because we have wisdom from the Holy Spirit, wisdom from God and wisdom from his word. And so I want to point you to this passage uh, to kind of help clarify that. Uh, it's James chapter 3, verse 13 through 16. You can stay in Job 2 and 3 in your Bible. I'm going to provide everything else that I go to on the screen for you. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. That's James three thirteen through 16. So we know, having read chapter 1, Satan absolutely is self-seeking. He's seeking to condemn both Job and God. Um, And it says that it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. That all comes from Satan. And so that's the kind of wisdom that I'm talking about. And the point I was trying to make is the reality that we know Satan was there in the garden. So the first two human beings, Satan was there. And we know from this passage that it says that he wanders to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. So he has freedom on the earth to walk around. And as God points out Job to him, have you seen my servant Job? He knows exactly who he's talking about. So for roughly 7,000 years, he has watched human beings in all of their, their best and their worst. He knows what we're like. So he understands human beings, the way we act, the way we talk, our failings, our successes, better than any of us do because we only live one lifetime. And he's been around since the beginning. And so in that way, I say he's very intelligent, very knowledgeable, very wise. Um, And so when Peter says, watch out because the devil is roaring around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, he's very cunning. He's very brilliant. And his tactics, um, as we're reading in Revelation, we see some of his tactics, being able to deceive people with signs and wonders. I mean, how does Satan perform signs and wonders? But he does. He is a liar. And he's very good at it. So um, this is another reason to seek his word and to become wise through his word. So let's jump in now at chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, verse 1 through 7 are almost a word-for-word copy of chapter 1, verse 6 through 12. It's the exact same kind of scene as we read before. But we're going to read through it. I'm going to point out the differences here. So, chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And that's where verse 6 ended. Here it says, to present himself before the Lord. And so this is another good reminder. Satan is subject to God. He has to show himself before God and give an account of what he's doing. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. This shows that Satan must give an account of his actions to God, and it also shows us where his dominion is. He is free to move about the earth. Um, God has given him permission, authority, to be able to do that. 
Um, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. This is just like the previous chapter. God is bragging on his servant, Job. He's bragging on his child who loves and serves him well. God loves his servants. He loves his children. And he certainly wants to brag on us and showcase us and show his pleasure with us whenever we are obedient, whenever we live upright and fear God and shun evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So God is pointing out. So in, in chapter one, there was Satan was asking for the rules to change and sort of betting God. And uh, Satan's accusation, which we'll talk about again here, is no one really loves you, God, just for you. No one really honors you or wants anything to do with having a relationship with you. They just do it for the stuff you give them. Job's life is great. The only reason he loves you is because his life is great. So in, he's accusing two at the same time. He's accusing Job of treating God like a meal ticket. He's accusing God that no one really loves you. They only respond with love whenever you do good things for them. So that's his accusation. And God here is saying he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. <laughs> and so he's pointing out, Wrong. <laughs> you are wrong, Satan. Nice try. Um, so the word Satan actually means adversary or accuser. Uh, and in Revelation 12, 10 through 11 here on the screen, um, it talks about him in Revelation. It says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. So here we see just how busy Satan is accusing us. It says that he accused them before our God day and night. Day and night. Um, and here is where we see a great picture we can be reminded of a great picture of the gospel. And that is that Christ, our great high priest, says is seated at the right hand of the Father, the Father interceding on our behalf. Satan is there accusing you every time you fail, every time you sin. And he's saying, look, they don't love you. You said if they love you, they'll obey you. He's disobeying, she's disobeying. They don't love you. And Jesus is there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. And he says, no. They've been covered. They are my redeemed. I already took the punishment for that disobedience. And they are mine. And you can't accuse us. And so they overcome him by the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice, the forever permanent, perfect sacrifice of Christ. And by the word of their testimony, they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. The word of my testimony is that Christ died in my place to take my sin. And that, that is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And that's what we see that's going to happen with Satan in the end. And here Satan is asking for the rules to change as he did before. So before it was, you've placed a hedge around him. Everything he touches is successful and everything's great. So he's saying, remove the hedge. Let me, let me mess with his stuff. And God says, fine. All, everything he has is in your hand, but don't touch him. So now we're going to see here, Satan answered the Lord and said, we're in uh, verse 4 here, chapter 2, verse 4. 
Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Now Satan's asking, let me at him. Let me at him. I, I, I will go after his very person. So he's trying to make another deal with God. He's asking for the rules to change. And God is here letting the leash out a little further. Okay, you can, you can touch him, but do not take his life. Um, and this is going to be important later. So looking at this, um, what is Satan's goal? That Job would curse God to his face. This is going to come this is going to be important in a few verses. That's what he wants. He wants Job to curse God. That's what he's trying to get, get to. So look how quickly Satan responds. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He didn't waste any time. He went after him. Painful boils. So I want to talk about this. I've got a list here. Uh, many people have gone through the whole book of Job and tried to map all of his symptoms, and some diagnosticians have tried to figure out what was that disease, what was it, and they've tried to narrow it down to different things. So I just want to go through some of these just to try to imagine. And one of the things I want, I want to ask you to do today as we go through is try to focus on empathy. Um, try to put yourself in his place. This is a real person. This isn't just some fictional story. This isn't a movie. It's not a work of fiction. Job actually suffered these things. So try, as we go through this, to imagine it's you or imagine it's your loved one And as we read through this. Um, so painful boils. So in chapter 6 of Job, so this is all in the book of Job. These are some of his symptoms. Chapter 6, 6 through 7. Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? This is Job talking. Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are as loathsome food to me. So the loss of taste and appetite. Um, when, uh, chapter 7, 4 through 5 and 19. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise and the night be ended? For I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. How long? Will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? So restlessness. He has worms in the boils, cracked skin and bleeding, unable to swallow. Uh, chapter 9, verse 18. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness, difficulty breathing. Chapter 19, 17, and 20. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body, my bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Foul breath, loss of weight. And then chapter 30, verse 30. My skin grows black and falls from me. My bones burn with fever. So some form of terrible leprosy and high fever. And so many people have taken all these, and they've tried to give a diagnosis, and there's all these different theories out there, and I don't want to go through all those and share all those because they're all conjecture. But the thing we know for certain is that the aim of this affliction is to get Job to curse God, right? That's his aim. And so we know that Satan came at him with the worst of the worst. That's what we can know for sure. We don't know what this disease is. We don't know what these boils are like. We don't, 
know any of the details. What we do know, Satan's aim is to get Job to curse God. So we know that this is a terrible, terrible affliction. Chapter 2, verse 8. In verse 8 now. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself. Uh, That's just a broken piece of pottery. A potsherd is just a, a broken piece of pottery while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Um, so this expression, midst of the ashes, uh, in modern day terms, this would be the dump. Um, so in those days, they didn't produce nearly the amount or kind of trash that we produce. Everything would be taken outside the city, away from people, and it would be on heaps and it would be burned. And so there would pretty much be a fire going all the time and there would just be ashes everywhere. So that's where he is. He's outside uh, of the city, away from people, uh, reasonably so. Um, it's probably hard to look at him and uh, the way that he's feeling and everything. So he's sitting in the dump <clears throat> outside the city. Uh, verse 9, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. This is likely the hardest test so far. Um, coming from his wife, his only immediate family member, still living. So to remind you, to remember, he had 10 children and they all died that same day. So he had these four calamities come from everywhere on him. He lost everything, all of his livestock, all of his fields, all of his children, everything he owned was destroyed all in a single moment, like all in a moment, all of that was taken from him. Um, And so I want us to also be empathetic with the wife as she says this. I think we kind of get warped with our influence today of like some kind of reality TV show where she's being real snarky and bitter at him. We don't know that, um, but keep in mind, he lost 10 children. She lost 10 children. And if she loves her husband, as wives often do, um, she doesn't want to watch him suffer. I mean, if you've ever seen your spouse go through something hard, it's hard on you to see your spouse suffer and to go through things. Uh, This could be from a place of compassion that she's saying that. She lost 10 children too. um, And she could be, you know, heartbroken seeing her husband in this condition the way that he is. And so the other very strong likelihood that, that I can see is that, again, as we said, Satan's goal is to get Job to curse God. And here his wife tells him to do it. Curse God and die, right? And it reminded me of the passage where Jesus is talking about his coming death. And Peter says, no, that will not happen to you, right? And he says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Satan knows that this wasn't Peter's thought, that it came from Satan. and says, get behind me, Satan. This is very likely Satan is still at work. His goal is to get Job to curse God. It's very likely that he used his wife sort of like a mouthpiece here to do that. So, um, verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Um, Keep in mind, he he loves and respects his wife as well. Uh, And this sounds like it's really you know, harsh towards her. But in reality, he's not comparing. He's actually contrasting her with foolish women by saying, you're speaking as 
one of the foolish women speaks, and there's sort of this surprise, right? This isn't like you. He recognizes you're not a foolish woman. Why are you speaking like one? And then the most profound statement so far in this book, shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So we know that it wasn't a condescending remark to his wife because that would have been sinful, and he did not sin with his lips. Um, uh, Something very interesting to me is that in chapter 1, when it talked about all the adversity, two of the things that occurred were raids from other people, Sabians and Chaldeans. And so as I'm thinking, putting myself in place, so let's imagine, okay, you own land, you have cows, and you have a hay field, and you have employees that work for you, and you've got all this equipment, right? Which is very relatable, because that's what a lot of this is around our area. And gangs come in and are killing your employees, setting your field on fire, cutting your fences, letting your cows go, destroying all your equipment. What are you doing? (laughs) I'm calling the police, right? This is criminal, and I'm angry at these gangs, right? And at no point does Job hold the people accountable. He recognizes that because of the immensity of this, this adversity that he's facing, this had to be from God. And it's baffling to me that he never, you know, said anything about the Sabians or the Chaldeans, but credits God as the one behind it all. But he's also not cursing God. Um, while his faith is profound that he still uh, looks to God as sovereign and in control of the entire thing, so in essence, sort of, you could blame God. He's crediting God. He's not mad at God either. I mean, just this faith is unbelievable. This is why God says, my servant Job, look at him. He's like no other man, and his faith truly is like no other. Um, it's a good contrast uh, in our faith because there's, there's so much teaching in our country, especially about uh, uh, name it, claim it, or, or um, prosperity gospel that you're going to be healthy and wealthy. Um, and if you aren't, it's because you don't have faith. Here we see someone with tremendous faith who has nothing. He is not healthy. He is no longer wealthy. Everything has been stripped of him, and his faith outmeasures all of ours. Um, and so it's just a, a cry in, in the face of that. So this is where we leave Job for a minute, and we take a little turn here in chapter 11. So 11 through 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. This is something I I never caught as I read through it the first few times um, that I've read through this book, but that they made an appointment together to come. So... uh, This isn't necessarily some huge discovery or makes a big difference, but it's something to consider that these guys probably talked ahead of time about what they were going to say because what we're going to see in the rest of the book is this dialogue going on, and they're trying to get Job to confess sin, which is not, we know, is not the issue here. Um, But it sounds like 
you know, they met together, they had a discussion, here's what we need to do with our friend Job to get him back on track. Uh, they made an appointment together to come, but they had good intentions to mourn with him and to comfort him. They came with good intentions, and when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, that shows you just how bad this is, how significant uh, Job's torment is at this point. They didn't even recognize him. They lifted their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. This is a very common ancient practice of mourning. It's a very Jewish thing to tear your robe and to put ashes on your head. Um, not something you see at all today, but this is a very common thing. This is a sign of mourning. Um, you can see here, they don't recognize him. The weeping that they're doing, it's almost like a death has occurred. We don't even recognize Job. It's as if whoever that man was that we knew as our friend is gone. He's dead. And so they're almost mourning in that way. And you, you see here as well, so verse 13. Uh, so they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Um, there was also a common practice in that time at funerals uh, is that the family, usually the widow or one of the family members would speak first before anybody else spoke. And so friends and family would come and mourn, but they would mourn in silence until the family broke the silence. And that was like a courtesy. You don't speak until the family speaks. And so that's, that's also sort of what's happening here. Um, but I also want to point out how great the friends start out. They sat down with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke. So no one spoke, but they also didn't leave. They started off great. This is what good friends do for one another. Um, they, they didn't speak, but they also didn't leave. This is most likely your best bet if you want to comfort someone who's going through something awful, especially if it is something you've never been through yourself. Don't be the bad friend who just comes in and tries to fix everything or tries to give the advice right away. If you haven't even been through it, you need to listen. Uh, that's what you need to do. You need to go and you need to be present and you need to listen. Um, and this is the best action Job's friends take as we're going to find out. So as we move into chapter 3, this is going to be the very beginning of all the dialogue. So for most of the rest of the book, it is dialogue, uh, mostly between four men, and then a fifth man comes in, and then God comes, reveals himself in a whirlwind, and speaks um, and settles it all. Uh, but that's where Job 3 begins. Again, uh, as we're, we're trying to empathize, I'm not going to do like a, a, a acting reading, whatever they call that, like a theatrical reading of this. Uh, but realize, again, what Job is going through. He didn't just recite this like reading a poem, you know, in a bookstore. Like this is a man who's likely barely getting this out through tears and screams and moans and wailing. Um, I'm not going to read it that way, but just for us to realize this is Job. So here we are in chapter 3. Um, so after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born. 
and the night in which it was said, a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. May those curse it who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. So here in verse 8, um, this is also a, a, an historical reference. There were um, like mediums, you know, people who practice like witchcraft, and they believe they could summer, summon uh, a dragon, you know, called Leviathan. And so that's what he's talking about. Uh, these people that practice this kind of darkness, this dark summoning kind of stuff. Um, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. Uh, here we are, verse 9. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light, but have none, and not see the dawning of the day. Because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide sorrow from my eyes. Um, I also want you to notice in this chapter that although Job longs for death, he wants to be dead. This is not suicidal. He's not planning to take his life. He's not claiming to be the one who takes his life. He still is recognizing God's control over our days. God is the one who numbers our days, and he's still submissive to God in all of this. And so he longs for death. That would be like God's great mercy on him at this point. Um, uh, so here we are in 11. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me or why the breasts that I should nurse? For now, I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep and I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. Small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. So here in, in verses 13 through 15, and then 17 through 19, uh, Job talks about this rest and this sleep that's coming. And this is what, this is where Job is getting lost. You're seeing this humanity and he's he's lost here and this is what sorrow deep sorrow and depression does to us to our minds it convinces us that death is an end to us it is an end but we know based on the rest of scripture the truth of god's word that our lives do not end at death because we are not merely flesh and blood we are souls that live forever and, but when you're in depression uh, and, and actually going through it, it's hard to see that. Um, it, and so that's, that's what we see in those, those verses. Why, why is light given to him who is in misery? Sorry, this is verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasures? Longs for death, but it does not come and search for it more than hidden treasures. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. 
Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes before I eat and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. The thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. He could be speaking of all of his wealth, all of his children. You know, we, we, have, we all are capable of having that fear that we'll lose everything or that we'll miss out. I think... Uh, another very likely possibility, um, not trying to go off into conjecture, is that Job knows he has a relationship with the Lord. He knows the Lord, and he loves him, and he serves him. God has said it multiple times already in this book, that he loves me, and he serves me, and he is being completely destroyed. Everything he has is gone. His body is just in, in terrible condition. He is suffering and God's not speaking. This relationship that he had with God, he can't, he can't understand anything. We got the insight from chapter 1 and 2 of what's going on in the heavenly places. We got it. He didn't. All of this just simply happened in his view. He has no idea what's going on. He is not privy to the conversation between Satan and God at this point. And so all he knows is I had this relationship with God and now I have no idea why he's doing this to me. I have no idea what's going on. And I can relate. I, I know whenever I, I get really, really sick or something or I have a pain in my shoulder or knee or something, it's worse not knowing what it is. And somehow, even though I get a diagnosis, I go to a doctor or something, and it's not going to get better, I feel better, right? Because I know what it is. They told me, oh, yeah, you pinched a nerve. I can't do anything about it. You're going to have to wait. You know, it'll work itself out. It's like, I know what it is. I pinched a nerve and now I'm fine. Job has no idea what's going on. That adds to the anguish. This chapter is absolutely heartbreaking. There is no joy in Job at this point. But even a passage of scripture like this can bring great comfort to our hearts. To most Christians, Job could be considered something like a Bible hero. You know, we kind of look at some of the the people in in the Bible that way. Um, We even use him as a reference. People sometimes try to encourage one another to say, have the perseverance of Job, or you have have the faith like Job, or his resolve, etc. And for us to be able to look at someone that God brags on, right? He brags on him. And see them, see Job here at his absolute lowest point. It can be a comfort to us when we suffer and it'll drive us, it can drive us to compassion for one another whenever we see others who are going through adversity. And so while this can just feel completely heavy, like it can also be a comfort to us to know Job has a faith like none of us, but he can still go through this. I'm someone who up until I was almost 30, um, I didn't know anyone who had depression. It wasn't like in in my face. I didn't know anybody. I just saw the commercials for the medications and kind of heard about it. But it wasn't, it wasn't real to me, and I didn't think it was real. Like I was just like, people just want an excuse for why they feel sad or feel blue. And, you know, you just need to get over it. Your life isn't that bad. 
I kind of, I, I was really not compassionate at all. And um, some of you know, not everybody does, but my wife and I and our two oldest lived overseas for a while in a third world country as missionaries. And it was difficult, you know, they weren't open to Christianity and and preaching and that sort of thing. So you have that on you all the time that you have to be careful about what you say and where you are and who you talk to. Um, it's not a place where that many people speak English at all. So you have to learn the language and the language is really hard to learn. Um, and we faced really difficult things. And as someone who didn't think it was real, God showed me this is real. And it, I mean, it hit us really, really hard. And we came back and, and dealt with it. And so in case you're like me and you don't know really much about it or what it's like, it's when you're in it, you can't see how things are going to get better. You can't. And if someone comes to you and says, oh, God works all things out for the good of those who love Christ, you know, and try to quote these verses, it's just banging off of them. It's not your job to come and fix them with a Bible verse. That's not really how it works, and that's not really helpful. Um, you want to protect them from reaching a point like Job where it's, it does go to being suicidal. We don't want people to end their lives. We don't want it to reach that point. But that's a very real thing. And uh, we also have a tendency. There's two things in our culture that are really strong. One is we're a quick fix culture. Right? Everything has a solution. Immediately, I can fix it with something. There's something out there that's going to fix it. We can't treat each other that way. We cannot do that. And the other thing is we chase feelings, right? We like to have some kind of emotional experience. That's what music and, and movies and TV do for us. It's this entertainment that gives us feelings. We like emotional feelings, and we like to be positive and happy and good. And we have to understand that that cannot be a permanent state for any of us. And we can't keep chasing these feelings. Oh, you're sad? Let me give you a little advice that'll cheer you up. That's not what people need sometimes. You need to take time. You need to slow down. Uh, the quick fix world, uh, Romans 12.2 came to mind as I was talking about these things in our culture. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to the world that loves feeling these happy, pleasant emotions or wants to have a quick fix, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our mind? Again, back to God's word. This renews our mind. God has revealed himself. He has spoken to us in this. And as we study, we learn further down in that chapter, in fact, Romans 12, 15, and 16, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The job is not to come and fix them. It's to be with them, to sympathize, empathize, weep with those who are weeping. The friends started off great. They came and wept with him and sat down and said nothing. Be of the same mind toward one another. Another way of saying that is do unto others what you would have them do to you. Be of one mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things. This is not meaning things above as in heaven. There's another passage that talks about that. We definitely should be thinking on those things. This is talking about uh, like a higher class or more intellectual things. Um, don't, don't set your mind on high things, but associate with 
the humble is a contrasting statement. The high things is opposite of humility, being humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. <laughs> this is a way of saying, don't try to give somebody advice as if you're going to fix it. Um, that's, again, Romans 12, 15 through 16. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Not everything is a quick fix. Don't be a friend like Eliphaz um, and Bildad. But come and, I mean, they started off right. <laughs> but don't be the one who tries to fix everybody that you come in contact with. Um, because often you do more damage. And that's what we're going to see uh, as we continue in this book, continue on through uh, in further chapters. We're going to see they mess it up real bad, and they, they make things worse. And again, Satan is wanting him to curse God, and the friends opening up their mouths and giving their view and their opinion and their advice is going to really serve Satan to try to get Job to do that. And we'll see that he passes the test. But um, Anyways, so that's the end of chapter 3. That's where we're going to stop today. We will pick up a little bit of pace Going forward, um, we've, we've gone slowly starting out to get this context, but we'll do four or five chapters at a time uh, as I, I continue through this book as we go through these dialogues to talk about these things. So things that are important to, to glean from today's study. First of all, Christ in the gospel. Satan, our adversary, accuses us day and night, but we have a great high priest, a mediator, intercessor, Jesus, our Savior, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and presenting the blood he shed in our place as evidence so we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. This is the, the, uh, this is the gospel. Uh, this is the truth. This is what we can definitely uh, take with us and celebrate for those of us who have trusted in him for that salvation. Uh, what does this teach us about God? He loves his servants, those who serve him, and love him, all of his children, if you have a relationship with God through Christ, he loves his servants. That love does not exempt any of them, any of us, from adversity, including sickness. Um, there is a very growing gospel um, that says that perfect health is a part of your salvation, that you shouldn't be sick anymore. Um, in fact, I recently was reading a website for a church in Weatherford before we came here. We were looking at churches and there was a church in Weatherford and on their what, believe, what we believe page on their website, one of their core beliefs was that health, perfect health is part of salvation in Christ and they cite verses uh, to support that. But Job definitely shows us that this is not true. Uh, it includes sickness but he will not allow Satan to test us beyond what we can handle. Satan is subject to him. And so that's what we can know about God and his sovereignty. So what do we do with this today? Study, study, study your Bible and pray every day. Uh, we need to. We need this book to help us, to uh, guide us in all things. Uh, what did David say? To, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How will we know how to operate if we're not in it? You got to get in it every single day. Um, be compassionate and slow to speak when you see those in your life suffering. Slow down. 
Take some time, listen, ask questions rather than giving advice. Let them express what they're going through. Um, Ask God to reveal himself to you and others and that we would all respond with humility. Um, That's what Job has showed us today. He responded in humility throughout all of this and it is of great value for all of us. So that's all I have. Let's, Let's pray. Thank you.